We thank you, Lord, for the reality of your person, the joy of knowing Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, how we long to to have people lay hold on eternal life, to lay hold of their possessions, what they have in Christ, to grasp and understand a little something of, of that which is potential in them because we are partakers of the divine nature. How we long, Lord, to see people come to the reality in their own life of real victory. And so we would pray for very special help tonight, particularly as we we talk of this most important subject having to do with the crucifixion of the old man. Lord, we pray that you would help us to know and to understand what we are in Christ and to live accordingly. We praise you for all that you are, all that you have done, and for the purposes purposes that you are working out divinely in us. We'll praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. We were talking last week about the fact that we, at the moment of our salvation, at the moment that we come to grips with the reality of what Christ has done for us on the cross and place personal faith in Christ, that miracles take place in our life, and among them is this marvelous truth that we are joined to Christ in an inseparable union and we are identified with him fully in his crucifixion, that is his death, in his burial, and in his resurrection. So that, in essence, God did a a miracle having to do with our old nature. Christ, the second Adam, died to do away with the sin of the old Adam, And thereby, there was a truth that so few people understand in a practical way, whereby there was a crucifixion of that old nature. We have been crucified with Christ. Now, the text goes on in Galatians 2.20 to say we have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, we live, or I live, Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, there is such a, a dynamic to coming to something of an understanding of this that I want to take a little more time to talk about it. I wish I had an overhead now. I would try to show you by way of illustration, but let me speak of it in terms of two spheres, in terms of two circles. In the upper circle, you have the eternal reality. It's what we call positional truth, the position of the believer. The believer in Jesus Christ is seated with Christ in heavenly places. We talked about that Sunday morning. Uh, We already have our place. We already have our seat. That's how thorough the salvation that Christ wrought was. These things that he did, including our position in the heavenlies, uh, 
is uh, not something that is dependent upon what we do, but on the basis of what Christ has done. It has to do with the whole scope of the finished work of Jesus Christ. And in that upper circle, we have a number of things that are important to our Christian life. Not the least of which is that we're seated with Christ in heavenly places. The thing that we recognize, however, in regard to that seating is, it's quite obvious to me that none of you are in heaven yet. And um, the, the fact is that you can't be in heaven and be here at the same time. Uh, there comes that day of choice uh, when, uh, when we breathe our last or hang on for one more breath. Um, ultimately, we will all die unless the Lord Jesus Christ returns for his own before that time. And we will be presented faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Jude 24. There is a perfecting that we call total sanctification that takes place at that moment that we pass from this life or the moment of the rapture of the church where we take on our new resurrection body and reign with Jesus Christ. But as to our position, it is secure. As to our practice, as to our life here on earth, God yet has a purpose for us. That's probably stated about as clearly as can be stated in Philippians 1, where Paul says, I have a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Paul understood positional truth. He taught it in numerous places, including the book of Ephesians. And uh, he certainly knew that there was a definite advantage to leaving this veil of tears, and especially under the kind of conditions he found himself with all of the troubles and persecutions that he enjoyed. He... Uh, he, he would just as soon depart and be with Christ. It's far better. Uh, it should take away all fear of death for a believer, as we mentioned briefly last week when we were talking a little bit from the book of Hebrews. But um, anybody that understands positional truth will especially be caught up in the marvel of the wonder of it all that we will actually be co-joined to Christ throughout all of eternity and uh, that he will be the head and we will be the body and, and we'll never be separated from the Lord again and sin will never come into the picture. It's a wonderful thing. But the crucifixion of the old man is also, or begins, I should say, in terms of positional truth. In practical reality, we still have to wrestle with a nature that has a propensity to sin. And um, God has arranged for us to have all kinds of resources, the marvelous promises of God, the word of God doctrinally, uh, so that we have a, a foundation of all of the things we believe. There is the power of the Holy Spirit, who in essence is God himself, living his life through us as we, by faith, yield to him. I would say a word about that. The Lord Jesus Christ came in a real human body. He had no sin nature, so he was minus that wrestling with sin. He had outward temptation that was much more intense than anything we'll ever face. Uh, so that kind of equals it up. 
but he could not be drawn from within his own lust and enticed, as James speaks of us. Uh, we, he did not have that inward urge to sin, but he had lots of outward urge and lots of opportunity. Uh, and yet he never sinned. No guy was ever in his mouth, never told a lie. He never deceived anyone. Um, he, he was absolutely impeccable, absolutely perfect. But if I can say this carefully, and I hope that you'll understand what I'm saying, Jesus Christ used no divine power on his own. He did not come here superman. Bullets didn't bounce off his chest. He did not come here as a, as in uh, some kind of a, a being from outer space uh, that took a human body but still had secret powers, ray guns and all of that. It's very clear in the New Testament that if you have Jesus Christ minus the Holy Spirit, you would have a powerless Christ. He could not have done what he did. Quite frankly, he had laid aside, as Lightfoot puts it, the insignia of his glory. He had laid aside his glory. That meant that he did not operate using the divine prerogatives which he had. So that when he wanted to know something, he had to depend on the Holy Spirit. When he wanted to know how to pray, he had to depend on the Holy Spirit. When he wanted to understand a circumstance, the Holy Spirit had to tell him. And the insight, the tremendous insight that Christ had even into the human heart was not the perception of omniscience of Jesus Christ, but the perception of the omniscience of the Holy Spirit. And if anything is plain in the New Testament, that Holy Spirit that lived in Jesus Christ and made him what he was as the God-man now lives in us. And if that isn't dynamite, I don't know what it is. That's one of the marvelous resources that God gave to us so that we could live in victory. The difference between Christ and us is really twofold. One, we do have that propensity to sin. And in connection with that, when we do sin, we grieve or quench the Holy Spirit. And in the process of grieving or quenching the Holy Spirit, we lose the power. The other thing is, he lived by faith constantly. In other words, he trusted implicitly the Holy Spirit, never trusted his own devices, never went down tangents and began trying man's methods to accomplish God's work. And so Jesus Christ perfectly lived in the power of the Holy Spirit. The reason we don't is because we, we flat out don't live that way. We do not think constantly in terms of our direction coming from the Holy Spirit. There are times where we begin to get the grandiose idea that we can figure out something ourselves. Christ never did that. And so you see he had an enormous edge because uh, uh, being who he was, he came with a commitment, prior commitment, before the foundation of the earth to do the will of God and nothing else. And so he did it right. And so don't be discouraged if you don't do it right. But what I'm saying is this, that at any given moment where you are committed to God's will, surrendered to Jesus Christ, cleansed by his blood, living in the power of the Holy Spirit, you can live like Christ. Now that's what Galatians 2.20 says. I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. 
yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Yes, I live, but no, I don't. Now that sounds confusing to some people. But you have to understand that the, the crucifixion took care of the problem positionally. So as far as God is concerned, we do not have to any longer be a slave to our own desires. Christ taught this when he told his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself. God has built into the Christian life the power to say no to yourself. Now, we habitually say yes to ourselves. It's one of the things that I, that I hope to illustrate, you know, in terms of even being here tonight. Um, I get so tired of people not doing things because they don't feel like it. But quite frankly, I didn't feel like being here tonight. There's a sense in which, in the spiritual sense, I have a message on my heart. I want to preach that message. But the fact remains, I didn't, I, I, it would have been easy for me, for myself, to just say, who needs it? Those people can get along without me tonight, you know? The fact is, I, I want to tell you the truth, I don't feel terribly ill. I'm just kind of lousy, you know what I mean? It's not as though I got a fever and I'm going to spread germs and all of that. So if I'd had that, I probably would have been smart for me to stay in bed, Right? But, you see, it's not as though I had the best excuse in the world that when, after working all day, I came home tonight and I had a headache. I just didn't feel good. And uh, I, I don't like to miss because I've got a passion to teach. I don't like to interrupt it all the time. I just don't like to. So there's that side of me that says, keep going, you can do it. There's the other side that says, no, now... In the process, there is a sense of duty. And I went against my feelings to be here tonight. See what I mean? And the same thing with getting up this morning. In fact, I do that every morning, but especially on Wednesday morning when I have got to be up before 5 o'clock. When I'm up, uh, when I finally get up and get my face washed and a few things, I'll get my teeth in and, and my hair on. No, <laughs> but you know, all of those kinds of things. Um, I, I really feel uh, as though I'm, I'm a human being. But previous to that, when I get up, I don't feel like getting up. When I first wake up, I think, oh, no, I know that alarm's going to ring in a few minutes. i got to get up. And uh, so I don't feel like it. But you see, we the thing that Scripture tells us is that we are to say no to ourselves, deny ourselves. And take up our cross and follow him. And you see, most people coddle themselves. As long as you're coddling yourself, the Spirit of God's not in control of your life. It's as simple as that. The Lord Jesus Christ never coddled himself. He was on a short time schedule. He had work to do. He knew what the will of the Father was, and he did it. No argument. Someone has said, uh, the will of God, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else, and at any cost. Just allowed to do it. Why? Because it's the will of God. That's why. And you do that in the power of the Spirit of God. Now, mechanically, the, the upper circle, everything has been accomplished that needs to be accomplished to give us victory in our Christian lives. 
we have to reckon on the top circle rather than the bottom circle. The bottom circle happens to be the practical working out of these things in our lives. It's in the bottom circle that we say, I have already been crucified with Christ. I do not have to yield any longer to myself. I do not have to yield any longer to sin. I do not have to yield any longer to any satanic force that may try to lure me. I have... I can claim what I have in Jesus Christ because I have all of the resources that he's put at my disposal. And the tragedy of the Christian life for most people today is that they, they forget about the top circle and they live in defeat in the bottom circle. God wants you to take steps of faith that are positive steps that are in keeping with what his word teaches. Now, we had just begun to talk about Ephesians 4 a little bit when we had to quit last week. And I want to turn back there because I want you to take hold of this principle again. There really is a three-factored process. A three-factored process that brings about victory in specific areas. And I would say that these are samples in Ephesians 4. They are not to be considered to be exclusive of any other things about which he can give you victory. They are samples. And these samples then can be carried into every situation that you, where you might find yourself. It says in verse 20, you did not learn Christ in this way. It's just gone through several verses of negative that had to do with the deterioration of the person's life, bringing him to the point of desperation. Paul's argument constantly was that when you sin, it is not natural for the Christian. Now, don't misunderstand me. It's normal for a human being to sin, but it is not natural for the Christian to sin. If you sin, you're quite normal. But if you, if you sin, you are not living the normal Christian life. Because, you see, the Christian has a victory over that sin in that circumstance was... Um, was indeed taken care of at the cross. Not only forgiven, not only the guilt taken away, but the possibility of victory. Therefore, sin in the life of a believer, though it's, it's common, it's an aberration. It doesn't belong there. Now, don't you go away from here and say, I'm, talk, I'm teaching sinless perfection, because I'm not. I'm saying that when you do sin, you shouldn't. You ought not. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, next time... You, you could have victory right where you had defeat last time. Don't get caught in the trap of, of chain sinning. You know, chain sinning is, don't you? Before you finish one sin, you light off a new one. You just keep it going. You just, you, you, a, person, a person tells a lie. This, lying is great chain sin. Uh, it's, it's like a chain smoker, you know. He uses the, the butt of the cigarette to light the new one before he quits. That way he can save matches, you know. And uh, he just keeps smoking and smoking and smoking. He doesn't quit. He just, and it goes on and on and on. Some people never, never have a minute, hardly, except maybe when they're asleep. And even then, sometimes they sleep in bed, smoke in bed and burn the house down. But they hardly have a minute where they don't have a cigarette in their finger. They're chain smokers. 
Well, they're chain liars. Because you can be sure that before you finish one lie, you've got to be dreaming up the next one because you've got to figure out a way to get out of the last one, right? And so you just you continue to do it and continue to do it. When you get caught, well, you come to a screeching halt. Then you start the whole series all over again. People do it all the time. Paul's argument was that you ought to live the Christian life in victory. And it's not, not right for a Christian to sin ever. When he does, there's provision for it. But uh, John wrote, these things I write unto you that you sin not. If any man sin, and that's a third class condition, maybe he will, maybe he won't. Uh, in other words, the human will is involved. But though the word was given, so we didn't sin. But uh, if you do, and you may, then uh, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he's the propitiation, the satisfaction, the mercy seat for all, our, for, for all of our sin, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. So you see, there is provision for it. But Paul constantly puts in these words, don't do it. And after talking about these characteristics of the old life, he says, but you did not learn Christ in this way. You didn't, this is not the kind of conduct that you ought to be having. Now, if it's true that some of the Ephesians had fallen into this kind of pattern, it's, be, it's not because they have lost their salvation, but because they have been guilty of imitating the unbeliever. And sometimes, and that's really what conformity to this world really is all about. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of the mind. Let me explain the difference between transformed and conformed. They're two opposite poles. Conformed is a word which means to show on the outside that which is not true of your inner nature. It's a disguise. It's a masquerade. It's the same word that Paul used in 2 Corinthians when he talked about Satan masquerading as an angel of light. Same word. All right? Transform means to show on the outside that which is true of your inner nature. It's the word that was used of the Lord Jesus when he was transfigured before them. That is, on the outside, they now could see what was true of his nature, and they saw him in his glory. Remember? God says we're not to show on the outside that which is not true of our inner nature. We are to show on our outside that which is, uh, is true of our inner nature, and that comes by a renewing of your mind. You, you, as you begin to think properly, think biblically, think under the influence and power and control of the Holy Spirit, then you see you'll be able to show on the outside what is true of you in the upper circle, what is true of you in your position in Christ. Quite frankly, the, the, the life here on earth, in part, is an opportunity for us to display before a watching world what we are in Christ. And we are, in the process, becoming what we are in a practical way. The thing that distresses me is not that we have defeated Christians in the church, but the fact that we have Christians who never learn anything in the process. Because they're just as defeated now as they were ten years ago. They haven't advanced in their spiritual life. They've learned a lot more and they become spiritual fatheads, but they have never put into practice in their daily living. They've never allowed the gnosis, the knowledge understood, to become epinosis, which is the practical application and living out by faith of those things that you learn. So Paul very intensely here begins to spell out for these people the mechanics of change. 
and how we can live out what he has already referred to in a couple of other places as the crucified life. And here it is. It says in verse 21, If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him just as the truth is in Jesus, that in reference... This is Ephesians 4, verse 22. That in reference to your former manner of life. Now you can, if you want to do it in a very practical way, you can just start writing down some of the things that you from your experience know are things that were a part of your old life that at best are questionable as where they ought to be a part of this life. Your Christian life. And we all got them. And it's a scary experience to start writing them down. Before you were saved, you did this. After you're saved, you still do it. Yet scripture, and you usually, if you know your Bible at all, you can usually think of a scripture verse or at least, you know, come up with a vague remembrance of a scripture verse that speaks about that. Before you were saved, you gossiped. Now you're saved. You still gossip. Yet scripture says we're not supposed to. It's in the lists, several of the bad he lists. Before you were saved, you did this. Before Now you're a Christian. You do this. Now I'm not trying to scare you. I'm certainly not prying into your private life. I'm asking you to do this, at least mentally, yourself. I don't know what those things are, and I'm sure not going to try to tell you what things I suspect. But you know, there's one thing that really bothers me about a lot of professing Christians today, and that is no difference. There's no difference. And I don't, I guess I live in the wrong generation, because I, I live in a generation of people where it used to be that when a person became a Christian, he was in reality a new creation. I think that part of our problem is there's a lot of professing Christians that aren't Christians at all. And that kind of confuses everything. But let's suppose that you have, as in the sincerity of your heart, you have purposed to follow the Lord Jesus. But what you've done is you've fallen back into those old habits. And Paul is saying here, that ain't right. Those things don't belong. Now, I think a lot of Christians, a lot of Christians did some strange things. Uh, Somebody would get convicted about something, and then they would put it on the rule list. I got a got a letter from some people back east that are listening to some of our tapes, and we've had quite a ministry uh, with this particular group of people uh, around the country in various ways. And uh, I won't mention the denomination because it, it would. Uh, you know, uh, I wouldn't want to in any way offend uh, the people, but um, they sent me a uh, a list of their rules. And they're having a little bit of problem with legalism right now, and they send me this list of the things they can't do and the things that they can do. And you see, that what that's doing is trying to bring victory into the lives of people by legislation. And Paul says in the book of Galatians, that doesn't work. You, you, you have victory in your life from the standpoint of liberty, not from the standpoint of, uh, of, of either legalism or license. 
victory comes out of knowing that Christ has indeed set you free. If the Son therefore shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. And there is a freedom in Jesus Christ. So legalism doesn't work. And there used to be kind of a legislation of these things. There have been some good teaching in the last 25 years on grace, and people have come to understand the freedom that we do have in Christ. But uh, that doesn't mean that we just do everything we want. Paul makes that clear as well. See, there's the, the whole matter of balance. The amazing thing to me is that we're raising a generation of young people who are looking at the, at the quote, freedom of the adults, all the things you can do, and they are turning around and putting themselves under a different kind of a bondage, the bondage of license. They don't have any discernment. That's tragic. Because quite frankly, if, if you're a Christian, the closer you walk with God, the less of these crazy things that are so common in our world system that you can do very comfortably. You just can't do it. Not because somebody put a law against it. That's legalism and that's not right. But you just have higher priorities. And so Paul is saying here that... When you think back to your old manner of life, here's what you do. You lay aside. This is the first factor. You lay aside the old self. And I'm going to give you a good reason. Uh, get it into your head why you should do this. Because it's being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. The deceit angle comes into the thing because it's not as great as it seems. You grab for all the gusto and what happens? You reach out there and it's nothing but but sandcastles. Uh, it's, it's, it, it's a deceitful thing. Your lusts are deceitful. What, you're, what your heart is telling you is good for you and you'll enjoy it and it'll be wonderful, in the end is a big waste of money, time, and energy. Because Satan is a liar and Satan is a master at deceit. So be careful of it. But it's, it's that which has a corruption to it. There's not only deceit to it, there's death to it. Because it's a corrupting thing. And so because that's the very nature of the things that we did, we lay them aside. I hate to see Christians give up some area of their life uh, that, that was maybe not the worst thing in the world that they could do, but certainly time-consuming, if nothing else. Certainly not a profitable thing for a Christian. And then after they learn more about God's wonderful grace, they return like a... Dog returning to its vomit. That kind of stuff doesn't belong in our lives. I'm afraid that, that people are so afraid of legalism anymore today, they're afraid to say that. I ain't afraid. <laughs> because I'll tell you, I think there are many things that Christians do today that are debilitating, if for no other reason, because they occupy too many precious hours of their time, hours that could be spent in studying God's Word. And I think we waste an enormous amount of time in our society today. And we, then we talk about how pressured we are. We get involved in things that have no business in our lives. He says, you lay those things aside. So that's the first thing. You lay those things aside. Why? And you've got a good rationale for it. Because of their corrupting influence and because of their deceitful influence. And then secondly, that you be renewed in the spirit of mind, of your mind. Now that's the second, though it's often the third. 
I want you to understand that. In Paul's illustrations here, it's really the third thing. But he, he has used an example of it just in verse 22. The Word of God goes to work on those things in your life in principle. You notice here, he didn't say you shouldn't smoke, you shouldn't chew, you shouldn't go with the girls that do. You see that? I mean, he doesn't say that. He doesn't give us a list of no-no's as far as the questionable things that we read about in the book of Romans and in chapters 13 and 14 and so on. He doesn't give us any kind of a list and, and to, to, to say, well, you don't do this and you don't do this and you don't do that. What he did was he gave us a principle and by it he renewed our minds. He pointed out both the death and the deceit of those things we used to do. And it's so easy to forget. I remember talking with a fellow who had come to me as uh, an unbeliever and uh, he he said, I don't know, my life is such a mess and I'm, I, I, I'm not going anywhere, I'm not doing anything, and I, boy, I need something, so I thought I might as well try religion. And that started our conversation and before too many weeks had passed, he came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ based on his empty search. He was the book of Ecclesiastes all over again. He had tried everything. Nothing had clicked. Nothing had worked. And became a Christian, began to grow in grace and knowledge of Christ, and began to show some real development of character. But after a period of time, he drifted back into some of his old ways, some of the things he was doing before. And his bit was, well... Christians can have fun too. And so he was doing some of these things that were highly questionable, certainly not good for his Christian life. And I never never forget one night when I cornered him and I said, I want to ask you a question. You say you're having a good time. You don't seem to have much time for God's word anymore. You don't seem to have much of a passion for souls. All of the things that began to show in your life have now dropped off and you're a different person than I've known over these past months. I said, I want to ask you a question. When you're laying on your bed at night and you're looking up at the empty ceiling, is it worth it? Or do you feel empty inside? Happily, he said, I admit, I feel empty inside. You know why I say happily? Because I think that confirms he's a believer. See, the unbeliever can enjoy sin, and enjoy all the pleasures of sin for a season, they can do it. But the Christian really can't. He can't really enjoy it. He can tell himself he's enjoying it. But when he's alone and none of the party is going on, you know, nothing's keeping him hyped, he looks up at that empty ceiling and begins to realize how empty he is. I think that's a confirmation that the guy is on the right track. And I said, is it worth it? No, it's not. And he told me something. He says, I forgot how empty I was before I accepted Christ. I forgot. See, God doesn't want you to forget. So he constantly reminds you, and that's one of the things the Word of God does. I always get a little exercised when people begin to scream that I'm a legalist because all I do is try to teach God's Word. And as I teach God's Word, 
God begins to point out things in their life. And the guys that scream the loudest about me being a legalist are usually the ones that have some, something wrong in their life. And they just don't like to be confronted with their sin. But you see, I'm off the hook. I try my best not to confront them. I simply let the Word of God confront them as much as I possibly can. I never yet have told anybody that uh, you shouldn't do this and you shouldn't do this and you shouldn't do that. I just simply talk in principle. And Paul does that. And that's what begins to get this mind thinking and get the renewing of the mind, you see. All right? And then the, the third thing, which often is the second, is and put on the new self. Now, you've got to reach up to the upper circle to get that. But you, you begin to act like what you are. Uh, I, I, I can tell you right now that there are a lot of... Uh, there are a lot of people down through history that have had a rare experience. I mean, I say a lot of people. There have been people down through history that have had a rare experience in that uh, they have been elevated to a place of royalty uh, because of some birth connection or something uh, that, that took place or some inheritance or some uh, grace shown to them. Uh, and, and here they were, a street urchin, and they were suddenly brought into the palace. Now, I'll guarantee you something. That person simply is unable in those circumstances any longer to act like what he was. He's now got to begin, he may not do it overnight, but he's got to begin to act like what he has become. It seems to me that My Fair Lady was kind of written on that with that tongue-in-cheek kind of an idea. She had to learn to talk right because she had this position now of being a lady. It wasn't easy for her, but she became ultimately the, the belle of the ball, so to speak. And you see, I, I admit, in fact, I, I get a kick out of, out of new Christians. Uh, they a lot of times feel awkward with Christians because we, we speak a kind of a language, you know, and we say words, little catch words that are sort of inside words, things like this, and sometimes they feel awkward, but they hang around long enough and they begin to pick up, uh, pick up on these things too and understand what we're talking about when we talk about being saved and, and uh, term, terminology uh, like being born again and, and uh, things like being in the Word. You know, can you imagine to a person that never ever uh, heard anything about the Christian life before, somebody says, now you've got to be in the Word. Well, it doesn't communicate very well, but you understand what I mean. You've got to walk by the Spirit, you know, things like that. But over a period of time, they begin to pick this up, and they begin to actually begin to, to, to use it as tools of communication so that we can communicate spiritual truth to each other. There's a whole new nomenclature. And what is true of that language also becomes true of a lot of other things in our Christian life. There are things in our lives that just don't fit, and as we're around people that are godly, we begin to realize this. I like to tell the story of how, how we... Uh, at Prairie Bible Institute, used to admire Mr. Maxwell uh, because he had such a command of vocabulary that uh, he, though he was a, a really interesting and exciting even speaker and was very given to enthusiastic bursts, uh, nevertheless, he never had to resort to slang expressions to get the point across. And I read somewhere that, uh, you know, people that have to use uh, uh, 
curse words and slang expressions, things like that. That's the product of a weak mind. And we used to admire Mr. Maxwell. We'd listen and listen and listen, and he could make a point very forcefully without, without using uh, minced oaths, uh, which a lot of people use uh, using uh, chicken words instead of using swear words. Uh, he never used uh, the common expressions that uh, were going around in that day uh, to, to make a point. Uh, he never used those at all. And uh, we, we got so under conviction about our sloppy language that we used to have what we called a cussing kitty in our room. If anybody caught us uh, when we were in their room, um, using any of those slang expressions, we had to put a nickel in his in his kitty, and some guys were getting rich on the thing, you know, because everybody we'd sort of agreed among ourselves on our floor, uh, in the dormitory that we ought to do that, and uh, we we did better as a result of it. When you're paying a nickel a shot, especially when we were as poor as we were, uh, you know, you you catch on real quick. But we we actually uh, had a change in our thinking simply by, and that's you know just human effort. Not that there's anything inherently wrong with using a, a, a word that uh, has less than robust meaning to make your point. Uh, you'll find me occasionally still using some of those words uh, to catch people unawares and get their attention. Uh, but but it's, it was an area that that where the Holy Spirit just convicted us at that time about this, and we saw an example of a man who could do better than any of us in his speaking ability, and yet never had to resort to that. The more you're around godly people, the more you hear them talk and see them walk, the more you're going to real figure this thing out. All right? And it's a part of that renewal process. It's a part of putting on the new self. The the whole it's not a it's not a hypocritical veil, but it's a real lifestyle. And it's not just after people, but it's in the likeness of God, because we've been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So we begin to live truth rather than live deceit. We begin to live life rather than live death. We begin to live health rather than decay. That's what God intends for us. It's tragic when Christians don't live that way. So therefore, he starts right in with the thing that he had mentioned, the contrast in verse 22 of deceit with verse 24, truth. And he says, let's talk about lying. Here's what you do. Factor number one, lay aside falsehood. Best way, you know, have you ever heard the expression, when is a door not a door? Anybody tell me what it is? The old riddle? When is a door not a door? When it's a jar. Isn't that right? Oh, come on. You've heard that, haven't you? Well, when is a liar not a liar? Well, it's not when he's a jar. When is a liar not a liar? When he tells the truth. How's the best way to cure a liar? Get him to tell the truth. So you begin by laying aside falsehood. You don't. You start by stopping lying. But the guy's got to say something. So what's he going to say? Well, he stops lying and speaks truth. Okay. So you stop lying and you speak truth. It's not, you say, well, that's that's so simple. But that's what the scripture's teaching you. You lay aside the old man, lying. You put on the new man, 
truth-telling. Because after all, remember, verse 22, the old self was corrupted according to the lust of deceit. Okay? And the new man has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. So you, you, you put aside the old man, you put on the new man. Now, how do you keep doing it? How can we develop the habit of it? Well, here it is. You, you speak truth, each one of you, neighbor, for we are members one of another. There, there, is a, there is, in the body of Christ, there is, a, there is a sense in which we are all one. And uh, you should not lie to your wife or to your husband any more than you would have your right hand lie to your left hand. I mean, you've got to cooperate here, okay? Silly illustration, but it's one that, that jumps out of this passage. Supposing your right hand says, I'm going to go that away. And all the time, or better yet, the older you get, the more problem you have with this. Your right foot says, I'm going to go that away. And your left foot, believing everything the right foot says, starts in. What have you got? He lied. You're going that way. And you're going to fall. You got it? They're members one of another. they got to get together. And if one's lying to the other, and that's of course what happens when there's a brain problem, there's all that confusion that comes in, and the whole body just doesn't work right. But you cannot tell a lie without it hurting you. You say, I don't see it right now. That's all right. Give it time. You will. Try telling truth and see what happens rather than telling lies. You've already seen what happens there in the confusion that it brings to the body of Christ. Be a truth teller. What's that? That's renewing your mind. Give you another one. It says, be angry. Now, that's a command. It's an imperative mood. It's saying, be angry. There is an emotion called anger that has its place. God gives us examples of anger. And we have to recognize that anger at sin is a positive and good thing. But there is also a wrongful anger. An anger that brings about sin. So it's the right kind of anger that you can hang on to because God doesn't want you to be a passionless person. But there is a wrongful anger. And the wrongful anger is when we, uh, when we sin in our anger. And the way we do that, the way we put on the new, is by putting a time limit on any anger. The smoldering anger that turns to hatred can't survive the sunset, all right? Don't let that happen. If there is in a moment anger, you before you go to bed at night, you examine your heart, you make absolutely cer certain that before that sun goes down, that you have dealt with that anger. So you keep short accounts in this very dangerous area called anger. 
And just for some extra motivation, when you carry anger over into the next day, you give Satan a foothold in your life. That's the renewing of your mind. I'll give you another. Let him that steals steal no longer. When's a thief not a thief? When he's no longer a thief, when he doesn't steal anymore, and instead he he labors with his hands. He works. When the thief becomes a worker, then that thief is no longer a thief. And to help reinforce that, he should perform with his own hands what is good in order that he may have something to share with him who has need. You want to become a giver. It's not enough to teach a thief to not steal. You have to teach him to labor something that's largely ignored in our society. And then having labored, you still haven't done the job until you've changed his mind and made him a generous person. That even the labor can be a trap. Did you know that? If a man is selfish, therefore he steals, and you put him to work and he continues to be selfish, he is still in heart a thief. But if you teach him that the meaning of work is to be generous to other people and he becomes a generous man, then that individual will never never steal again. The purpose of work is to give. Boy, that's, a, that's one that a lot of people today in our society. Uh, why do we have all these guys doing all this stuff and, and coming to an to a untimely end in their businesses and everything else where they've, they've, they've proved to be thieves? We are raising in our valley in particular a generation of some of the most selfish people you ever saw in your life. And when a person is selfish, it is a grave temptation for him to steal. When he becomes generous, it makes all the difference in the world. So you change people into being generous people. You see, God has a way. Look at what it says in verse 29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. <coughs> Stop talking. Is that right? No. Just don't let any putrid words. That's what the word is. The word putrid. Let no putrid word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification. According to the need of the moment. Why? Because you want to give grace to people. <coughs> Excuse me. You want to give grace to them. Words have a purpose, a divine purpose. Christians ought to be adept at using words. You want to see one of the best texts is 2 Corinthians 1 in regard to giving comfort. God wants to allow you to be comforted by him so that you in turn can become his representative in comforting others. And giving a word in season, out of season, giving, a, giving the right words at the right time, using words properly can be a wonderful, wonderful thing. And God wants you to be in the, involved in giving grace. Now he sums it up in verse 30 by saying this, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. This is what God wants us to do. It's a very practical thing, isn't it? 
Positionally, it's a wonderful thing because God has made provision so that we do not have to live according to the dictates of the old nature. But here, as far as this world is concerned, as far as now is concerned, we realize we have been crucified and dead and buried and we've been raised to new life. And in that new life, God wants us to rec- wants us to know that our old nature is that the old man has been crucified. God wants us to reckon it, reckon ourselves dead to it, indeed dead indeed unto sin. He wants us to reckon that we are alive in Jesus Christ, and in the practical vein, He wants us to go through this, go through the closet of our life, and take and throw out the old and put on the new, and get our mind working by the Word of God, so that we're thinking right. And when we're thinking right, we're going to go the right direction, do the thing the new man says, rather than thinking wrong and doing the thing that the old man says. That's victory. And God made arrangements for that by the death of Jesus Christ, and it's something that was given to you at the point of salvation. By the way, just for your own curiosity's sake, it says here we're not to grieve the Holy Spirit of God. In First Corinthians chapter, First Thessalonians chapter five, it tells us we're not to quench the Spirit. If you look at this this text and the context, and then look at the context in First Thessalonians you'll discover that there is an ethical or moral issue involved in grieving the Holy Spirit. If you're stealing, if you're lying, if you're using your tongue wrong, or or you've got bitterness in your heart, or you're not forgiving other people, well then that's what grieves the Holy Spirit of God. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it's a totally different matter. There's no ethical or spiritual matter involved. It's things like this, pray without ceasing. Rejoice evermore. And the lack of those things in your life brings about a quenching of the Holy Spirit. So you can say that when the Holy Spirit speaks to you about not doing some activity that He doesn't want you to do, and you go ahead and do it, He is grieved. When the Holy Spirit wants you to do something as far as your life, witness or, um, or pray or uh, read your Bible more or what, any of those kinds of things, not where a moral or, or ethical issue is involved, but where it's a matter of, of God trying to develop your spiritual life. When you refuse to do what the Holy Spirit tells you to do, then you quench the Holy Spirit. Whether you grieve the Spirit or quench the Spirit, when you do that, the Holy Spirit if we can use this terminology, the Holy Spirit is a gentleman. He backs off. He wants, in fact, the book of James tells us that he, that he longs to control you. It's his business to control you. You're going to mess up if he doesn't. And he wants to keep you from messing up. But when you insist on going your own way, the Holy Spirit steps back. He's still there. But he's grieved or he's quenched. And when he's grieved or when he's quenched, you're on your own and you're going to mess up. I'll guarantee you, uh, about three breaths from now, you're going to mess up because you've already messed up. Christ said, without me, you can do how much? Nothing. So how much can you do without the Holy Spirit's control? Be not drunk with wine, where is excess, but be ye constantly being controlled, filled, controlled by the Holy Spirit. It's very, very important. So, 
I'm sure that you want, I know I want, as constant victory in my life as I can possibly experience. And I can say this, just by way of testimony. Always in our Christian lives, there have been times where we've gone for longer periods of time than we should have, walking in the flesh rather than in the Spirit. But praise God, they're getting shorter and shorter and shorter. And in my Christian life, I have come to the place where there is an acute sensitivity to the Holy Spirit's feelings. I, You know how it is living with your wife? And you can just sense if something isn't quite right. And she'll say, no, I have nothing wrong. And you know better. You know good and well there's something. She may not be able to articulate it, but something's there. Something's there. And you sense it. As you walk with God's Holy Spirit, you come to that place where you more and more acutely sense there's something wrong. And you begin to immediately say, what, what did I say? What did I do? What did I miss? And you confess your sin. He's faithful and just to forgive your sin, to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You learn to get in the habit of simply saying to the Holy Spirit, you're right, I'm wrong. Let's pray. Father, it's good to be here. It's good just to explore your word and even in this this informal way tonight, just talk about it and kind of let those word verses just filter through our mind. Lord, I would pray that you would undertake for these dear people. Father, we pray that you would constantly keep us in a place of victory, so much so that people will want to know how they can experience that walk with God as well. Grant to us, Father, a very special time. In these days subsequent to tonight, we look forward to Sunday, the Lord's Day, to the good things that you are going to be doing for us there. Bless us richly in all of these things. We'll give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.